0: Okay. Well, let's get this party started. Hello, I'm Father Timothy Matkin. This is Matins. And uh, we're doing a little series here on purgatory and the Anglican view of such things. I was asked uh, by a couple people to comment on that. And, of course, uh, November is the month of devotion to the Holy Souls for praying for the departed. So do say some prayers for the departed. Um, And it's a wonderful enrichment for your own prayer life, Um, especially if you're not older and, you know, all your friends haven't died and that's all that you would pray for. But to turn your attention toward those who have departed and those you know personally, those you don't know, you can pray sort of, you might say, anonymously for your own departed ancestors. Um, And it also keeps you mindful of your own mortality. Memento Mori was... uh, the tagline in the Middle Ages. Uh, Before we begin, we want to say uh, be sure and uh, like and subscribe. And if you like this, if you think other people would be interested in this, then please share it. Go to your social media and share it on Facebook or Twitter or wherever and uh, so other people can see this and uh, maybe it'll enrich their lives too. And uh, thank you for tuning in on uh, Apple or Spotify or YouTube. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can comment down below on YouTube, or you can write me a email at frmatkin at priest dot com. We also want to have our uh, prayer for the day, and uh, this time, uh, keeping up with the theme of the Holy Souls, we'll be turning to the Collect from Lesser Feasts and Fasts uh, for the. Uh, all Souls' Day, or the commemoration of all the faithful departed, let us pray. O God, the Maker and Redeemer of all believers, grant to the faithful departed the unsearchable benefits of the passion of Thy Son, that on the day of His appearing they may be manifested as Thy children, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with Thee and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. So last time, we looked at Prayers for the Dead, uh, which is kind of where it all begins. This time, we'll uh, target in on the articles of religion and uh, see what they have to say about it and also see what commentators on the articles of religion have to say about it. So first of all, what are the articles of religion? Well, it it was kind of a feature of that era of uh, the late Middle Ages, the early Renaissance um, that you had... um, articles that were put out by church authority. And of course, uh, we're most familiar with the ones in England, but there were the same type of things in other places as well. And this was basically when kerfuffles happened and people were getting into arguments and um, very hot topics of the day were out there. And uh, this, these were articles to get people to basically uh, calm down and shut up. <laughs> and so they're explicitly called articles of peace. Um, which is to say, they're not like uh, confessional documents, like you find later with um, the, the Augsburg Confession and so on, or even the West, the Westminster Confession. Uh, keep in mind that the Puritans, the the radical Protestants in England, uh, were never satisfied with the Articles of Religion or the Church of England. Uh, they wanted far much more, and uh, so the <laughs> so much eventually they overthrew the government, uh, murdered the king and murdered the archbishop and uh, banned the Church of England, ban, banned the prayer book, um, and they took the articles of religion because they were never never satisfactory fully to them and basically re- remade them as the, um, what are they called? They, it's not Articles of Westminster, Westminster Confession. Um, so the articles have never been like confessions, never been like conciliar statements um, that you get out of ecumenical councils that uh, come down hard on a on an issue and make a definition and say anyone who argues the opposite is anathema um, so it's never been quite like that but it's it's and I wouldn't go so far as to say it's a whitewash kind of statement, but it's a limited statement on some controversial things saying what can be said and not really saying any more than that. And as I mentioned, Articles of Peace to get people to, to calm down and uh, not be so intense about their uh, debates and discussions and so on. So the the uh, the, the 10 articles, you the 10 articles and the 6 articles and the 42 articles and finally the 39 articles. Um, the, the 6 articles of Henry VIII were referred to as a, a whip with 6 stripes, you know, by people who didn't like them. Um, and at first it was kind of a big deal, and then over a couple of years it just kind of gets ignored. Um, and perhaps you, perhaps that's the nature of articles, in a sense, is to get people to calm down in a moment, and then you know later on it gets more or less forgotten about. It certainly not paid the same attention that it was to it when it originally came out. Uh, but, the, of course, the, the Anglican Church is still around, and the 39 Articles articles are still around. Um, they were put out by Act of Convocation, and then uh, put out by an Act of Parliament as well. So, in the um, 2019 prayer book, there's a little note in the back um, on uh, the fundamental declarations of the province. Uh, so, at the founding of the province, of the Anglican Church of North America what are we about? What is our fundamental statement of faith, I guess? It's not like a creed, but like, you know, what brought us here together? Um, So they enumerate seven. And the last one says, uh, we receive the 39 Articles of Religion of 1571 taken in their literal and grammatical sense as expressing the Anglican response to certain doctrinal issues controverted at that time and as expressing fundamental principles of authentic Anglican belief. And when they mention literal and grammatical sense, that's not something new. That was something that was basically part of a, you might say, a cover letter for the articles themselves. Um, and the king said, now look, everybody's going to want to pick these apart. <laughs> so don't don't read too much into them. There are limited statements and take them in their grammatical sense, you know, what, what the actual words on the actual page actually say. Um, and also note that um, they point out that, look, these things are not like necessarily the list of the 39 things that are most important to us, they are the list of things that had to be addressed as issues of controversy in that moment of time. If we had to have a new list of controversial things, it would be a different list. Um, but that was the list at that time. And uh, primarily, it seems like, in, in the little description here, that they express fundamental principles of authentic Anglican belief. You know, So it's not all just about the list of 39 things and what they have to say, but how we handle the, these things is also important and relevant, and why we still pay attention to the 39 articles, because it lays down sort of the Anglican approach that has uh, become popular. Well, let's look at the thirty-nine articles and what they have to say about the doctrine of purgatory. So we don't get to any mention of that until we get to Article Twenty-Two, and so that's basically where we'll be. It's interesting um, in <laughs> the the Articles of Religion, the the original, um, and I guess you'd say the official is in Latin, Um, and that's how things were at that time. The official prayer book of the Church of England is in Latin. (laughs) The English is considered uh, a translation, I guess you'd say. Um, And the same thing is here. Even the article that talks about the importance of worshiping in the the vernacular (laughs) is written in Latin. Um, And that's because it was the international language of the day, the language of academia, the language of official documents, and so on. Um, So that's also helpful in in interpretation because you can say, well, what is the original Latin? Um, How did they handle that? How did they translate that? And so on. So here's what uh, the English text of Article 22 says. Of Purgatory, that's the title. The Romish doctrine concerning Purgatory, Pardons, Worshipping and Adoration, as well as Images and of Relics, and also invocation of saints, is a fond thing, vainly invented, and grounded upon no warrant of Scripture, but rather repugnant to the Word of God. Uh, it, it says, it was unaltered, in, this is the in the notes here, unaltered since 1553, except that in 1563, Romish doctrine was substituted for doctrine of the school authors, or scholastics, basically. Uh, probably Uh, to bring the condemnation uh, up to date, it says. Um, The commentary that I'm reading from is uh, The 39 Articles of the Church of England by E.J. Bicknell. Uh, So there's a couple of um, kind of classic uh, commentaries written on the 39 Articles, and this is one of them. Uh, So he was a late professor of New Testament exegesis at the University of London. Uh, It was first published in 1919. And so here's what he has to say. Um, Our Lord Jesus himself scarcely can be said to make any direct revelation on the subject of the intermediate state. If you remember from before, we talked about the intermediate state, the state between death and resurrection. In the parable of Dives and Lazarus, and again in his words to the dying robber on the cross, he employs current Jewish language about the afterlife. He thus seems to bestow his sanction upon the general principles of contemporary Jewish belief. More than this, we cannot say. To press the details of the parable is hazardous. But our Lord's language does certainly imply a state of consciousness after death that is conditioned by our conduct here. So we can deduce some fundamental things that uh, we don't believe in what is generally called soul sleep, that we sort of go unconscious at death and then wake up on Resurrection Day and are unaware of anything in between. Um, No, we're conscious and aware during uh, this separation from the body. Uh, And our condition in the afterlife is related to our um, life before death. So he says, Jesus deliberately refutes the Sadducees' denial of the future life. Remember, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. That's why they're sad, you see. His profound reserve on such a subject about which curiosity is most active is in striking contrast to the detailed pictures alike of Jewish apocalypse and later Christian theology. So Jesus' actual words on the afterlife are somewhat limited. His teaching throughout is marked by stern insistence upon eternal issues, that hang upon our use of present opportunities. He discourages speculation about the future in the interest of moral earnestness about the present. Above all, he urges the duty of watchfulness. And so really in keeping with the Jewish approach, you might say, that Jesus um, doesn't get into a whole lot of talk about the afterlife and leads us to conclude that perhaps we shouldn't be engaged in a whole lot of speculation, that we should stay focused on the here and now, because the afterlife is an extension, in a sense, of the here and now. In the epistles, that is the letters in the New Testament, the scantiness of reference to the intermediate state is in part to be explained by the expectation of our Lord's immediate return. The majority expected to be alive at his coming, but the death of Christians at Thessalonica brought St. Paul face-to-face with the question. He lays down that the union of departed Christians with our Lord is not broken by death. as <clears throat> 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-16. In 2 Corinthians 5, 6-8, and Philippians 1, 23, St. Paul seems to regard death as the entrance into a fuller union with Christ than is possible on earth. Saint Peter's language about the quickening of our Lord's human spirit at death, First Peter 3:18, suggests that our own spirits may then receive. <coughs> me. Suggests that our own spirits may receive a more abundant life, and that our Lord Himself uh, may be, That like our Lord Himself, we may be called to a new form of service in the world beyond the grave. In Hebrews 11 and 12, the departed saints of the Old Covenant are regarded as looking forward to sharing with us in the consummation of God's purposes. In Revelation 6, 9 through 11, the souls of the martyrs are pictured as underneath the altar, crying aloud in prayer for the final subjugation of evil, and they are bidden to take rest for a little time. So too in Revelation 14 uh, 13. The promise is given that they which die in the Lord from henceforth may rest from their labors. So we do get a little bit of insights here and there about the intermediate state, a few things that we can make conclusions about, but not a whole lot. <clears throat> he continues, but this intermediate state, though a state to be desired, you know, you want to be in this state when you die is always viewed as imperfect, temporary, and a preparatory state. Just as our Lord did not attain to the fullness of His glorified human life till the resurrection, so since the full life of man is of one body and soul united, there is still the resurrection from the dead to look forward to. So there is an intermediate state between death and resurrection, an intermediate state in which we are conscious, in which we are up to something, doing something. What are we doing? What is the point of that intermediate state? Are we just kind of like sitting in a waiting room? Um, What what are we doing? So, thus, St. Paul seems to regard the soul when taken by death. Uh, It is put off the body, the earthly house of our tabernacle, as in some sense unclothed and waiting for the resurrection body our habitation which is from heaven, 2 Corinthians 5, 1-4. He, he even speaks of it as absent from the body. In Philippians 3, 20-21, the Christian waits for a Savior from heaven who shall fashion anew the body of our humiliation that it may be conformed to the body of his glory. This clearly happens not at death, but at the appearing of Christ. So, in 2 Timothy 4, 6-8, through St. Paul expects his crown of righteousness, not at death, but at the last day. In 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and following, the putting off of immortality and the final defeat of death is assigned to the general resurrection at the last day. The same thought is found in Revelation 6, 11, for a little while, and indeed throughout the book. Whatever difficulties of interpretation there are, it is quite clear that the faithful departed have not yet attained to their full bliss. The new Jerusalem has yet to come down from heaven. To sum up, we cannot but contrast the reticence of Scripture with the bold and confident assertions of too much later theology. At the same time, certain general principles are consistently laid down. There is a universal belief in an intermediate state, which will end with the coming of Christ and the final judgment. It is held that only through the resurrection will man attain to the perfection of his whole nature. And then Bicknell says we must always bear in mind two points. A. It is probable that we are unable to receive any detailed teaching about the future life. The conditions under which it will be lived are so entirely different from those on earth that no description in human language is possible. And that's an interesting point. It's like, even if we knew more, would we really know more? Because what we would know would really be by way of analogy. And I've mentioned this before, you know, as as much as you talk about the afterlife, it, it gets more and more difficult because you use material, spatial terms about non-material, non-spatial things. You use material terms about spirit. Descriptions of matter applied to spirit. And how much does that really carry over? It's an analogy, and at a certain point, all analogies break down. He says, there can be no doubt that the writers of the New Testament were largely, and this is point B, I guess, There can be no doubt that the writers of the New Testament were largely influenced by Jewish ideas. So they didn't just make this stuff up overnight. They didn't get a whole new revelation from what was in the Old Testament. So it's not always easy to say how much is due to teaching taken over from Judaism and how much is definitely Christian. Hence, we must be very cautious in pressing their language. As we have said before, the whole question of time comes in. It's very difficult, again, for us to conceive of a soul without a body, that is, an organism by which it can enter into a relation with its environment. We may well suppose that the soul, in some sense, possesses the germ of a body, even in the intermediate state. And I think, maybe last time we mentioned, or perhaps in one of the Bible studies, that um, St. Augustine has this odd kind of speculation about maybe we have sort of an intermediate physicality of some kind. Um, probably just because it's so hard to imagine existence without it. Bicknell continues, We turn from Scripture to the belief of the early church. We know of no time when Christians did not pray for the departed. And that's true. From the earliest evidence that we have, it seems like they're always praying for those who've died in the faith. Such prayers may well have been a part of the church's inheritance from Judaism. And that makes sense. It's usually held that in our Lord's day, the Jews were accustomed to pray for the dead. We read the story in Second Maccabees 12, that Judas Maccabeus commanded prayers for the men who had fallen in battle and collected money for a sin offering on their behalf. The apologetic tone of the writer suggests that his action needed defense, but it proves that such prayers were at least possible at that date, around 100 BC. And I would, I would argue that, Um, the kind of apologetic tone there is not so much about the prayer for the dead as it is about arguing that this is about the resurrection. That really, if we didn't believe in the resurrection, if we didn't believe in some future for the departed, then there would be no point, you know. Bicknell says, further, it's highly probable that the prayers from the dead in later Jewish worship go back to far earlier days and were in use in the synagogue worship that Christ attended. The New Testament is silent on the subject, except that St. Paul's prayer for Onesimus in 2 Timothy 1.18, where he says, the Lord grant unto him to find mercy of the Lord on that day, is quite possibly such prayer, that Onesimus is dead, and that Paul is praying for him after he has died, that he would find mercy on the day of the Lord. As soon as we get a Christian literature, namely at the close of the 2nd century, we find the practice established of praying for the dead. Tertullian speaks not only of prayers for the dead, but also of the offering of the Holy Eucharist on their behalf. The only opponent of such prayers in antiquity was a certain Arius in the 4th century. He also took an Arian view of Christ and founded a schism. There is no reason to suppose that he spoke for anyone but himself that it was a small, heretical faction. So too, from the middle of the 2nd century onwards, we find requests for prayers on tombstones. By the way, what do I want on my tombstone? Sausage and pepperoni. By the 4th century, there's clear evidence for the regular inclusion of intercessions for the dead in the Eucharistic liturgy in most parts of the Church. So, 300s, we're seeing this as a routine part of the Eucharistic liturgy which is basically when we first get Eucharistic liturgies, um, because the church is now public and open and not under persecution, and they don't have to worry about their books being burned and all that kind of stuff. Such prayers imply a belief in progress after death, but that is all that we have the right to say. That's all we can firmly conclude from these early prayers is that life is not static at that point, but that... As on earth, before we die, life is, I don't know if you say evolving, but progressing, uh, developing. On examination, they go to prove that the early church held closely to the teaching of Scripture. The intermediate state was regarded as primarily a state of rest and refreshment and of closer union with Christ preliminary to the resurrection. In the Eastern liturgies, the requests for such things as rest, a place and a mansion in God's kingdom, the resurrection of the body, that sins of the departed might not be remembered. These blessings, it is hoped, the faithful departed are already assured of, and in part, enjoy. In the West, the earliest prayers are very similar. But as the West always had a deeper sense of personal sin than the East, such prayers tended to make more mention of sin, cleansing, and forgiveness. Even so, the propitiatory aspect did not become dominant till after the time of St. Augustine. And even in the medieval days, something of the old spirit survived in the offices of the church, in contrast to the current popular teaching on purgatory. A similar change of tone... And let me read the note here about um, that last sentence. At the Reformation, all prayers of the dead, as distinct from the living, were removed from the prayer book in the reaction against everything connected with purgatory. But the faithful departed were meant to be included in the prayer of oblation, quote, that we and all thy whole church, that is, militant, expectant, triumphant, all thy whole church may obtain remission of our sins. It is important to notice that in the condemnation of prayers from the dead that was included in an early draft of the article was deliberately withdrawn. So that is, In the first draft, they they said, we don't agree with prayer for the dead. And then they took that out because that, you know, remember the articles. We're going to say what we can say, and we're not going to say any more. So some people, perhaps, are arguing that we should not say any prayers for the dead. But that's not the consensus, and that's not the official teaching of the church. So they took that out. So they only condemned the Romish, or you might say corrupt, doctrines about purgatory, the intermediate state. Uh, So he says the question about prayer for the dead was left open, or they were silent on it. It is true indeed that one of the homilies forbids such prayers, but it does so on the ground that at death all souls pass at once to their final condition, heaven or hell. This is not scriptural, and if we deny the premises, we are not bound to accept the conclusion." prayer for the dead is now regularly included in authorized services. So going back to the main text, Bicknell says a similar change of tone, um, talking about uh, more and more uh, expiation of sins and forgiveness of sins is being addressed in the prayers of the dead as we move forward in time. The idea of purification after death is found from quite early times, but until the time of St. Augustine it seemed to be almost universally connected, not with the intermediate state, but with the day of judgment. Tertullian, indeed, applies the word of Christ about paying the uttermost farthing to punishment after death, but he only suggests that punishment for small offenses will take the form of the delay of the sinner's resurrection. There's no explicit suggestion of discipline during the time of waiting. Clement of Alexandria, Origen, And Gregory of Nyssa all speak of a fiery trial which awaits man after death, but this is conceived not as a prolonged discipline in the intermediate state, but as the day of judgment itself. At the appearing of Christ, the Christian who is in need of purification will at once be chastened and healed. The fire that cleanses is regarded not as the fire of purgatory, but as the fire of hell, which is supposed that all men in their measure experience and which is not only pe- penal, but remedial. For those who need it, the trial will indeed be severe. The righteous will be purged by it. The wicked will hardly, if ever, escape from it. We note that such teaching is not based so much on Scripture or Christian tradition as on the heathen philosophy and speculation, that is, Greek ideas. They were indeed certain texts of Scripture which could be brought in to reinforce it, especially First Corinthians three, thirteen through fifteen. Uh, but its real origin lies elsewhere. A similar belief was shared by Basil and Gregory of Nazianzus. In the West it was adopted by Hilary, Ambrose, and Jerome. But after Gregory of Nyssa, the subject was practically dropped in the East. Down to the Council of Florence in fourteen thirty nine, the Eastern Church had no doctrine of purgatory, which is to say not necessarily that they, they had no theology about it, but they had no official teaching about it. There were Greek delegates under great pressure of outward, mis, sorry, under great pressure of outward misfortunes, who were induced to consent to the doctrine of purgatory in a vague form. But the East as a whole, refused to accept the decrees of the Council of Florence. Since then, the Eastern Church, though protesting against the Roman view of purgatory, as an innovation, unknown in Scripture and the Fathers, has come to teach a process of purification after death, though it is not officially committed to any definite view about it. In the West, speculation about punishment after death found a more congenial home. St. Augustine is the real founder of a belief in penal purgatory between death and judgment. This teaching is quite explicit in his latest work, uh, De Civitate, He combats the view that all punishment is remedial. Some endure temporal punishments in this life only, some after death, some both now and then, but all before the last and severest judgment. But not all who endure temporal punishments after death come into the everlasting punishments that are to follow the judgment. For we have already said that in the case of some, what is not remitted in this world, is remitted in the world to come. Um, Later in uh, chapter 26, he's more cautious. If after the death of this body, until we are come to that last day of condemnation and reward, which follows the resurrection of our bodies, in this interval of time, the spirits of the departed are said to endure the fire of such a nature as not to be felt by those who who have not had such characters and desires in this bodily life, as to require the consumption of their wood, hay, and stubble. It's a reference to Paul in 1 Corinthians. But to be felt by others who have carried with them the building of this kind, whether there only be there or here, and there or here or not there, their worldly yet pardonable things, or to find the consuming fire of transitory tribulation, I do not dispute it, for perhaps it is true. So he's basically engaging in speculation and talking about the other speculation about the fire of Judgment Day. We cannot but notice the very tentative language and hesitating nature of of his language. Bicknell comments on Augustine. It's obvious that there is no formal and authoritative church teaching on the subject. Augustine was feeling his way. He states his own opinion, but it's only an opinion. Even so, his primary concern was not speculation, but insistence on a living faith. Such a purgatory, if it exists, as he believes, is not an excuse for slackness here. It's only for Christians who have, at bottom, remained true. The great name of Augustine was sufficient to win general acceptance for his teaching in the West, but it remains still an opinion. Not to the close of the 6th century do we find this doctrine of purgatory endowed with any semblance of authority. In the dialogues of Gregory the Great, the question is raised, are we to believe in a purgatorial fire after death? Clearly, it was a legitimate subject for discussion. The answer is given that a purgatorial fire before the judgment for certain light faults is to be believed. That is, not the fire at judgment day, but something earlier, leading up to that covering that time of the intermediate state. Such faults includes unbridled conversation, immoderate laughter, undue anxieties, mistakes due to ignorance, including adherence to the wrong Pope, when you have disputes about who the real Pope is. Gregory's teaching makes use of certain stock texts, like 1 Corinthians 3.15 and Matthew uh, 12.32, but its real support, very interesting, is a series of thrilling ghost stories which form a part of the dialogues. In fact, it was claimed that a whole flood of new light had been shed upon the condition of the departed by certain recent revelations and apparitions. We need to remember that medieval doctrines of purgatory rested for the most part upon the visions narrated by Gregory, reinforced by fuller and later evidence of the same precarious nature. In plain English... An uncritical age was unable to distinguish between nightmares and revelation. Well, there's more to come, so we need to pause there. We'll continue next time in going through Bicknell's commentary on the 39 articles as it relates to uh, the doctrine of purgatory and the Anglican take on the subject. So uh, I hope you'll continue with us next time. We'll pick up where we left off and talk more about that. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please like and share. And uh, we'll see you next time. God bless.